Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood family. It is an honor for me to be able to be back again with you here uh, today and sharing the word. If you would go ahead and open up in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible with you, you've got one right there in the seat, uh, the underside of the seat there for you. I think it's page 939. I forgot to look, but I think that's it. Somebody can confirm me on that. Yeah, 939. It looks like Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 24 through 32 today. And what I'd like to do is begin by reading that passage. And I'd ask that you'd follow along very closely with me, okay, as we read. Here we go. Therefore, God gave them up in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator who was blessed forever, forever rather than the creature. Amen. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations. Verse 27, So that all who received in their own person the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them up to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, Merciful. Verse 32, and as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Now, unfortunately, what I just read to you is not what is in front of you. I don't know how long it took you to notice that. What I read is very idealistic, very optimal, very perfect. But God's Word is not in the business of just tickling our ears and telling us what we want to hear. The very opposite, in fact, God's Word is in the business of showing us the truth. And it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. Very clearly, God's Word shows us, and I'll go through these quickly. Romans 1.18 that we looked at last week, the wrath of God is poured out on all sin. And we have sinned and are separated from God, Romans 3.23. And we're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And the wages of that sin is spiritual death, Romans 6.23a. But the gospel, the righteousness of God, rests on anyone and everyone who by faith will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for anyone and everyone who will believe. So that means that God alone has the power to replace my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son. In theological terms, we call this justification. And as I was thinking through this concept this week, preparing to speak today, I remember this, hearing an old Baptist preacher from the South say this. I heard it on more than one occasion. Maybe you've heard the same thing before, but I wanted to speak on this just for a second. When we talk about what justification is, I've heard it said before, well, it's justified, never sinned. Do you see that? Justified, never sinned. I've heard it said that way a few times. And while catchy and clever, it is a very, very poor play on words. 
that cheapens the sacrifice of Christ. Because what it does is it makes pretend that we haven't sinned. And if we pretend that we haven't sinned, it diminishes the severity of sin against a holy and righteous God by softening that which had to happen in order for us to be truly justified. Namely, the brutality of the cross and the miraculous resurrection of Christ. So we are justified. Our guilty sin verdict has been changed to not guilty. Why? Because Jesus, who was innocent of sin, bore the penalty of God's wrath towards sin for those who are guilty of sin. And so Peter can write in 1 Peter 3.18, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, if we take those verses that we just looked at a moment ago, as dark and as bleak as they are, as hopeless as they sound, we take those verses and we insert the gospel, here's what we get. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is poured out on all sin. Insert the gospel. And Romans 3.26 can say that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.23 says we have sinned and are separated from God. Insert the gospel. And Paul can write in Romans 8.1 that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Insert the gospel. And Ephesians 2.5, four verses later, can say that God made us alive together with Christ. Romans 6.23a tells us that the wages of sin is spiritual death. Insert the gospel. And then the second half of the verse can be written that says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23b. If we truly believe the gospel, then it has the power to save by covering us in the righteousness of Christ. And that gospel and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God, it moves us towards holiness. It moves us towards Christ-likeness. I would contend that it moves us towards that idealistic rendering of this passage that I read to start. It moves us in that direction. So last week, among other things that we explored, we talked about the mercy of God. We looked at Romans 7, 7a, which said, if, I'm sorry, 7, 7b, which Paul basically said, if it weren't for the law, if we didn't have the law, then I wouldn't know what sin was. And then Paul writes in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin. It's that stark warning that God is going to judge humanity because of its suppression of the truth. So the law and the truth about our sin revealed to us is merciful. And then furthermore, the gospel, it's revealed despite our sin as God's salvation for those who will believe. But for those who do not, for those who will not believe, there's this ever advancing moral deterioration. The unrighteous deny what is fundamentally true. We talked about that last week. What is that fundamental truth? He is God and I am not. Therefore, they became futile in their thinking because their thinking is based on a lie. The opposite of that. I am God, and He is not. And that pushes them further and further from God. And what happens? Their hearts become darkened. Inevitably, the result of that is idolatry, self-idolatry. And that's where we move to today. Idolatry that is manifested in other actions and attitudes that we're going to see. So there's this absolute devolvement of morality. 
And so as we continue in today's, uh, today's passage, verses 24 through 32, it's going to give us a very clear picture that humanity has no righteousness of its own. Secondly, we're going to see the depths of depravity to which humans can take itself, which hum- humanity can take itself. And these depths of depravity are the logical outcomes of man's futile thinking and man's darkened heart and also God's response to man's self-idolatry. So let's read today's passage for real this time. Beginning in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, this morning, this passage is so, so incredibly heavy. Lord, as it reveals to us the depths, as we said a moment ago, the depths of our depravity and where our sin nature will take us. Lord God, I pray that this morning that as we study your word and look at your word, that you will soften our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. I pray that if there is someone in here this morning, Lord Jesus, that does not know you as Savior, as we have sung about this morning so clearly, as we have looked in your word so clearly, Lord Jesus, there is forgiveness in your name. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know that truth, that you would move on their hearts. Lord, I pray for us as a church, Lord God, that you would also move on our hearts and show us what you would have to show us through this passage and shape us through it, Lord God. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for your grace. We love you, Lord. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. I know there are many of you in here this morning that can identify with, with the situation that I'm about to describe to you. If you've ever been in a place, if you've been shopping, maybe like a grocery store or a mall, something of that nature, and you've seen, maybe this has happened to you specifically, where you've seen children in a, in a, in a stroller or a grocery cart or in their mother's arms, and, and they want to get away from that. They, they want out. They want to get down. They want out. Don and I experienced this one Christmas. We were at the largest shopping mall in Birmingham, Alabama. It's called the Galleria. We're at this, at this mall. Christmas time, massive crowds, uh, shoulder to shoulder, last minute gift shopping. People were just, you know, just kind of going nuts. And so we find ourselves in, in the thickness of all this madness. It's Donna, it's me, 
It's Lucas, and Lucas at the time is a two-year-old toddler, two years old. And when you come into the Galleria at each one of the entrances, maybe you've seen this before, they have these, these things that you can rent, these push wagons. You know, you put your child in them, you buckle them in, it's fun for them, and you kind of you know, you keep, keep them right there um, at your feet. We also had a couple friend with us by the name of Randy and Andrea and their young daughter. And the thing was, Lucas was not being belligerent, he was not being impatient, he was just enjoying riding in this little push wagon. But he was, he was being very well behaved, and when we came upon the escalator, he points at it and he says, can we ride that? Can we go up and down? And so Donna and I obliged, but this push wagon is so large, you can't take it up the escalator. So our, our decision was, you know, Donna would stay at the bottom, and I would ride with him up to the top, and you know, we would each stay at one end of the escalator and let him ride a couple of times up and down. Okay? And so that's exactly, exactly what we did. So Lucas and I go up, and he comes back down to Donna, and then he comes back up to me, and then back down to Donna, and then one last time back up to me, and then I ride back down with him to, to meet everyone, and then we're going to continue, uh, continue our shopping. And it was really fun. It was, it was just a great time watching him giggle and enjoy the escalator as he rode up and down. And so we get to the bottom, and Donna and I and our friends, are, are, you know, we just resume our chatting, and uh, I go and I turn to take Lucas and to put him back in the push wagon and buckle him in, and he's not there. And I turn behind me, and he's not there. And we realize that he's nowhere around us. He's nowhere in our vicinity. And so we begin to search frantically. Like we just, we kind of, we go into this frantic mode. And I become this, this general where I'm like, he was wearing this color jacket and these pants. And Donna, you stay here because he's going to come back. And Randy, you go this way. And Andrew, and so on and so forth. And so we scatter. And now praise the Lord, within about five minutes, uh, our friend Andrea had found him. It was the longest five minutes of my life, and I'm sure of Donna's as well, because we're in this crowded, crowded shopping mall. What had happened was as Lucas and I came back down, for just a moment, we take our eyes off of him, and he just got right back on the escalator and went right back up. <laughs> Only this time he decided not to come back down, but rather just took off about 50 yards away on the second level of the mall. And so it was, it was, it was a harrowing time. You, guys, you can probably identify with that. Maybe that's happened to you. Now, what, why, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because what's interesting is Andrea, our friend, tells us that when she found him, he was not in distress. He wasn't crying for us. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't fearful. But actually, he was rather content. He was doing his own thing. He was running around. He was exploring. He was happy to run in his freedom and do whatever his heart desired. Now, I know that you identify and you understand that for us as parents, we didn't abandon him. We didn't cut him loose, but unintentionally, he did come out from under our watchful eye and from our care. He tasted freedom, and he lived it to the fullest. And he was not even aware that there was any potential danger. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is that mankind has the tendency to do the exact same thing. That mankind will go out and do as he pleases, and without any restraint, he's going to do as his heart desires. And so we get into today's passage. What we probably notice as we were reading, right off the bat, three times we see repeated in this passage, in verses 24, 26, and 28, it says, God gave them up. God gave them up. In, in theology, theologi the, theologians call this judicial abandonment. 
Judicial abandonment. That means that mankind, in his, as we explored last week, in his futile thinking, in his darkened heart, in his lust for idolatry, God lifts his restraints or withdraws and allows man to do whatever he wants to do. Allows man to go his own way, at least for a season. Now this is seen, this sentiment is seen in the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites had this sort of same attitude. They demanded a king. They weren't satisfied with God as their king, with God ruling over them. They wanted a human king, just like all the other nations around them, because it was working out so well for all the other nations around them, right? I say that sarcastically. They wanted a human king to rule over them, and so God gave them what they wanted. They got Saul. And Saul was a king who was selected for all the wrong reasons. This was a king whom the prophet Samuel actually pleaded against because of the harshness with which he would rule over the people. And he warned the people. They didn't care. Saul won the People's Choice Award, and he became king. Ultimately, we know the story that he would fall in his pride and his disobedience, and Israel would suffer in the process. So God lifts his restraint. God gives them up and allows them to do as they wish for a season, as we'll see. We see offenses in three areas. When we take last week's passage coupled with today's passage, we see offenses in three areas. The first thing that was obvious last week is we see offense against the Creator. How, do, how does man offend the Creator? Verse number 18, the suppression of truth by unrighteousness was the first thing. Verse 23, man's self-idolatry, he raises up idols, which is ultimately a, a manifestation of him worshiping himself. So we have offense against God the Creator. And when God the Creator is offended, the next natural logical step is that there is offense against His created order. That's what we'll see today in verses 24 through 28. And then the third area, offense against mankind. Verses 29 through 31. So offense against God the Creator, offense against His natural created order, and offense against fellow man. So as we jump into the passage, verse number 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So here's the first iteration of that judicial abandonment. God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their flesh. In the lust of their flesh, that means the desires and the longing of their sinful nature in their self-idolatry that we just explored in verse 23. It says, God gave them up in the lust of their flesh to impurity. The word, the Greek word for impurity here is the word akatharsia. The Greek word akatharsia, Doriani notes that this Greek word most often points to sexual acts. And as we're going to see that in, in more detail here in just a few verses. But he makes the note that disorderly physical desires also lead to other things. Disorderly physical desires lead to drunkenness, to gluttony to other forms of self-harm. He makes the note that in Romans, the use of the body is a sign or a marker of one's spiritual situation. That how one treats the body and uses the body is a very clear indicator of their spiritual state. Nevertheless, let's make no mistake, what is in view here by this word is our sexual issues. That is what is in view here that those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they dishonor their bodies among each other, as Paul says at the end of verse 24. Verse 25, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is essentially the same language that we saw two verses earlier in verse number 23. Verse 23 said that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images of anything else. For images. The same language used in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Here's the truth. People are not simply forgetting God. People are not casually just overlooking God. This language tells us that they are exchanging the truth. That is, when we, use, when we say that word exchange, I think this is a cognitive and intentional decision. The creature in lieu of the creator. The creator who is blessed forever. It is a cognitive and intentional decision. Now, the creator who is blessed forever. Why do you think Paul includes that tag, who is blessed forever? Why did he need to include that? Is God blessed forever? Of course. Of course. Emphasizing, I think that the reason that Paul does here is to emphasize that mankind may choose to walk his own path from now through the remainder of history. No thought, however, no thought, no scheme, no best laid plan, no matter what it is that man is able to conjure up is ever going to usurp or circumvent God's throne and His majesty. He is blessed forever. Forever And all the forces of evil and darkness and death, all the spiritual efforts of hell and all the physical efforts in the minds of men are never going to be able to conquer the Lamb who died and rose again. God is blessed forever. Verse number 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Paul says, For this reason. What reason? Well, remember, four connects to the previous. We talked about that. For this reason, that reason is the willful exchange of the truth for a lie. The willful exchange of truth for a lie. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We saw first that in that first iteration, here's the second iteration of that judicial abandonment. In the first iteration, we saw that God gave them up in the impurity uh, to impurity in the lust of the flesh. And so what that has led to now is dishonorable passions. And the term dishonorable passions, I think it says more than what we see just on the surface. That we see this on the surface and we think, well, it must inv- what, what, he, what he's talking about here is the physical act. While we would commonly think that the physical act is the, is the outcome of wrong thinking, that is true, this term shows us that the desire or the passion for unnatural sex acts also brings dishonor. It is wrong, yes, it is wrong to commit shameless acts, and it is wrong also to have passion for them. Doriani again says here that to desire a deed, in, order, in other words, to want a thing, to desire a deed that violates God's will is already sinful, even if it is never acted upon. I'll read that again. To desire a deed that violates God's will is already sinful, even if it is never acted upon. Hence the reason why Jesus taught the way that he did about adultery and murder. Lust is tantamount to adultery. Hatred is equivalent to murder. 
the thought is equal to the action in terms of sin. And I think the reason that we sort of divorce the two, that what happens up here is not near as bad as what happens out here, is because the law of our land does not persecute our thought or doesn't uh, punish our thoughts. But if I commit the act of murder, the law of our land sees that as, as much more offensive and it will do something much harsher about that, right? So we tend to think, well, my thoughts are not near as bad as my action, but that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that the thought is equal to the action. And so this expresses itself without, I mean, without argument in the sin of homosexuality. This verse notes specifically that women are exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And here we have that word again, exchange. Exchange. And it's used in the same manner. A cognitive, willful, and intentional decision. So at this point, I asked myself, I thought this was very interesting. Why does Paul specifically write on female homosexuality first? before he addresses the men. I've read this passage many times over before, and it never occurred to me until studying for it this week. Why would Paul address female homosexuality first? So we read that in verse 26, and then we get to verse 27. Let me read that, and then we'll move on. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We ask that question, why does Paul write about female homosexuality first? I think we have to consider the I think that we have to consider the audience, we have to consider the culture, and we have to consider the time that he was writing. Okay? First, female homosexuality was widely rejected in the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was rejected. These were societies who viewed women as property of men. In many, many cases. Therefore, female homosexuality would not have been very common. So the audience would have been immediately on board with what Paul was talking about here in his thought regarding females. Oh yeah, we don't do that. Absolutely, we're on the same page here. But now when we get to verse number 27, Paul condemns male homosexuality, which as a complete opposite in that day and in that culture was totally normal and was a widely accepted practice. In this society, it was encouraged by many uh, philosophers and Greco-Roman writers of the day. And that is seen throughout history, that is seen in history in the, pact- and the practice of, of pederasty, which is pedophilia, as well as between masters and slaves, both male and female, for whatever their sexual desire was within the moment. But now Paul says here, Paul says, likewise, just as the females exchange natural relations for unnatural ones, which you reject, the men do the same thing, which you should also reject, despite what society and culture says. Men do the same shameful things, committing shameful acts with other men, behavior that elicits disgrace. This is the offense that I was talking about earlier. This is the offense against the created order. Where we, saw, where we saw offense against the Creator, that is through the suppression of truth and through idolatry, that leads naturally to rebellion against God's created order. Modern day thinkers call this utilitarianism. Maybe you've heard this term before. Utilitarianism. Mankind, basically what utilitarianism 
uh, posits is that mankind has the innate ability to construct order for himself. One such utilitarian thinker by the name of John Stuart Mill, he says this, Here's how you define if something is good in the utilitarian mind. He says, an act is good if it increases pleasure and reduces suffering. An act is good if it brings the greatest good and pleasure for the greatest number of people. It increases pleasure and reduces suffering. So what's the goal in the utilitarian mindset? The goal is to reduce suffering. So the, the logical thing that they ask is, well, what is it that causes suffering? What causes suffering in the utilitarian mind is the restraint of not being able to do as one pleases. So we have to remove those restraints. The cure, the solution to reducing suffering is to permit anyone to pursue pleasure and express themselves according to their taste and their orientations. That is the utilitarian mindset. Paul says, though, that the repercussion is that they receive the due penalty for their error. Many commentators, and I want to take this part of the verse, and I actually want to work backwards through it, okay? And here's the reason why. I want to start with the word error, because many commentators note that the word error in English is a really soft translation for what the original Greek word here is. The Greek word here in this passage is the Greek word planes, which is not intended, it has a much stronger uh, meaning than our word error. When we think error, we think, oh, it's an accidental oversight. I made a mistake. It wasn't my intention, it was just kind of a mistake. The Greek word planes does not denote accidental oversight. It is not an innocent mistake, but this word refers to a gross rejection of that which is righteous and godly. A gross rejection of that which is righteous and godly. Now, we cannot say with 100% certainty what Paul meant by due penalty. What is the due penalty for that rejection? We can't say with 100% certainty, but I think we can, make a, a, we can formulate a good guess. The first penalty, commentators note that the first penalty is wrapped up in what we are currently exploring today, and that is this judicial abandonment that God would withdraw, would, would withdraw any restraint and allow mankind, again, for a season to just do as he sees fit. And as he does that, that brings us to the second part, that man is going to reap the natural penalty, uh, the, the due penalty would be the natural chaos or the natural tension breakdown that, proceed, that proceeds from violating natural order. What do I mean by violating natural order? Let me give you an example. My car is empty on gas, but gas is expensive. And I don't want to drive all the way to the store to get gas. You know what's cheaper than gas? Water. It's more abundant. It's easily accessible. Let's go with water. The due penalty for my rejection of the natural order of gasoline as the combustible liquid that drives an engine, the due penalty of my rejection of that natural order by using water is a destroyed engine and a non-functional vehicle. So goes the human relationship. When you have homosexual supplantation of heterosexual design, you get a natural breakdown in the family that ignores the complementary roles of both male and female in relation to one another. 
Also in the functioning of a God-honoring household. When you have homosexual supplantation of heterosexual design, that couple is then rendered with the inability to obey God in His command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth with God's image bearers. A third reason that we may uh, infer as this due penalty for their error or rejection, and this is not any kind of religious study. This has nothing to do with religion or with faith, but according to secular medical studies, it is proven as an immediate consequence that within the homosexual community that there is, in fact, a higher rate of infection uh, uh, with sexually transmitted diseases, as well as, again, according to a secular medical study, a decrease in intimacy through sexual activity as shown in medical studies. Ultimately, we know that the due penalty for the rejection of God is where we began this whole thing today. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23a. Paul goes on to write in another passage where he does not mince words, where it cannot be misconstrued in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I want to preface it because this passage, this verse that you see here, wraps it up so well. I want you to notice that those who practice homosexuality is listed as one among many things. That it is not, I know in this passage, that we have sexual issues in view here, but Paul is about to, in just a few moments, in a few more verses, going to make it clear that unrighteousness manifests itself in a myriad of ways. It's not just, well, the verse is not there anymore, but it's not just those who practice homosexuality. Let's move on, and I'll come back to that. Verse number 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The final revelation of God's judicial abandonment is operating with a debased mind. So I want you to see this logical devolvement that I mentioned earlier, okay? It's going to be on the screen. A person who becomes futile in their thinking, verse number 21 from last week, develops a darkened heart and chooses to serve himself through idolatry, verse 23. That person then is judicially abandoned by God to impurity and dishonorable passions to where now... He's not just thinking in futility. He doesn't just have futile thinking, but his entire mind is debased, meaning that it is completely compromised. It is thoroughly perverted. Not only are we offending, not only are they offending the Creator and His created order, but now what we're going to see in the next three verses is that they're going to be found sinning against their fellow man. And here's how they do that. Verse number 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Now we're just making stuff up. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Why do any of us sin? 
John Piper, in one of his works called Battling Unbelief, it's what uh, my Connect group is going through right now uh, through, that, through that work, John Piper says that the reason that any of us ultimately sin is because of a failure on our part to trust in the promises of God. We sin because we do not ultimately believe that what God says is better. For example, adultery. My greatest satisfaction and joy cannot possibly be in a monogamous relationship. Or homosexuality. My greatest satisfaction and joy cannot possibly be in a heterosexual relationship. Or drunkenness. My greatest satisfaction and joy could not possibly be in self-control. Or envy. My greatest satisfaction and joy cannot possibly be in contentment. Or idolatry. My greatest satisfaction and joy cannot possibly be in the Almighty God, Creator and Ruler of all. We sin in a myriad of ways, as I mentioned, because we fail to trust the promise of God that what He has and says is better. Verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Again, it is not ignorance, but willful rejection, a rejection of righteousness to embrace unrighteousness, and ultimately embracing the due consequence of such rejection. And I think that when that happens, uh, when that happens, what inevitably happens is that it creates a searing of the conscience. It's not only that they commit such acts. This conscience becomes seared to the point that not only do they commit such acts, but Paul says they give approval to those who practice as well. While they practice their own sin, they stand on the sidelines and they cheer on those who do the same. Because the goal, therefore, is to entice others to join in the sin. To make what is common seem normal and what is normal seem right. In doing so, R.C. Sproul says that man seeks to establish a new ethic. Because why? Because if man can establish his own standard, then there is nothing in his debased mind of which he needs to repent. There is no wrath. There is no consequence. If I can establish a new ethic, a new standard, I am God, and He is not. So what do we do with this today? Very, very heavy passage. What do we do with this today? The first question that I thought of, and maybe you've thought this as well, as we're looking at this passage together, why would God give them up? That's reiterated three times. Why would God give them up? Is it, the, is it that God sees no hope for them? In giving them up, is He therefore giving up on them? Does He no longer love them? I would contend that the answer to all these three questions is no. A big, fat no. Why? Because here's what God's Word says. God so loved the world, John 3.16. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10.13. Because God desires that none would perish but come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. I think that God would give them up, the unrighteous would give them up to their desires, perhaps they would hit rock bottom in their sin. That they would come face to face with the reality of their rejection of God, and that would be revealed to them by circumstantial misery to which their choices have led them. 
I think that's why we do it. Ultimately, that they would come to the end of themselves and embrace the righteousness of Christ and exchange the lie for the truth. And, and church, this morning, I told you I was going to come back to this, and so here we are. Though we may not see ourselves struggling with homosexuality, I cannot imagine that there is one of us in here today that can go through verses 29 through 31 that we read through, all of those other manifestations, attitudes, and actions of sin, that we could go through those three verses and not find some way and somehow that we are prone to reject what God says is good in both our thinking and our actions. Doriani says, let us be candid about the array of human failings. Let us not condemn outsiders and say nothing of our own failures. Because we can be very quick to judge the sins of others while failing to consider, to acknowledge, and to repent of our own failings. And how do we do that? People commonly do this by comparison. Well, you know what? I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not doing this vile thing or that horrid thing. I'm not doing that as some others are, so I must be doing pretty good, right? Whose righteousness are we banking on? Because we have none. We have none. The righteousness that we have is by the grace of God, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us because of His death on the cross and because of His resurrection. And when we have faith in the gospel and believe that righteousness is given to us. Let us not forget that we were, Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sins. What do dead people do? Nothing. Nothing. But God, God, but God made us alive together with Christ. And it is on that basis alone that there is now no condemnation for you, Christian. Non-Christians, if you are not a Christian here this morning, if you're in here for the first time today and you're like, well, for, you walked right into the, the fire today. <laughs> but if you are not a Christian in here today, or maybe you visit a few times, I don't know. If you're not a Christian, I'm telling you this today in love. Not in judgment, not in condemnation, but I'm telling you that the wrath of God still rests on you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But the best news is that you can know eternal life today. That if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. On Friday, I was continuing to study and prepare to speak today, and I was taking a break, and I was flipping through Facebook, and I saw this post uh, from our own Delilah Pugsley, who is on staff here at Wildwood, and here's what she wrote. I copied it immediately because it was so relevant to this. She said this. She said, He endured isolation from God, and the full cup of God's wrath was poured out on Him, Jesus. In my place, all of His friends abandoned Him, and He was mocked, beaten, and spit upon for the sins of those who repent and turn to Him. That was for you and for me. Jesus did that. Jesus took the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin. And while we deserve that, while it should be poured out on, that, on us, Jesus stepped in and said, Lord, I will take that. Father, I will take that wrath. And He did. And for those who will believe, He gives His righteousness. Christian, 
this understanding of judicial abandonment should shape our prayer life. That's the application for us. The application was, number one, for us to self-inflect, to look at ourselves and say, how am I struggling in any of these areas? And to repent. But I also think that this understanding of God giving non-believers up, judicial abandonment should shape our prayer life. Sproul, Sproul said again, that our basic nature as fallen humans does not want to receive the knowledge of God. And when it does penetrate the mind, we do not want to keep it there. Hence the Bible's use of the term hard heart. I've heard that before. So my questions for you this morning are, are people's hearts hardened in their sin? Of course. Are those people beyond God's grace? Of course not. So last week we were challenged. You may no longer, Christian, you may no longer be subject to God's wrath but you know someone who is. Who will tell them the gospel if not you? And so maybe you think, yeah, but you just don't know these people. They are. You, you hear the way that they talk. You see the way that they act. I, I think that they may just, you know, we get to that place where we think that it's, the situation might be hopeless. If their hearts are hardened, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that any human being can do. It is the merciful work of the Holy Spirit of God that will change that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. People may have written them off as hopeless, and maybe you have too. But if you have, that is a lie that Satan is feeding you because there is no one that is beyond the grace of God. Who will tell them the gospel if not you? But also, who will pray and fast intently and earnestly for a hard heart to be softened to the truth of the gospel? Who will pray for them if not you? Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for your word again. As heavy as this passage is today, Lord God, we see revealed in it that you are a gracious and merciful God. Oh, Lord God, for the things that we fall short in, that we struggle with on a daily basis, yet, Lord Jesus, while we were still sinners, you died for us, and that, Lord God, is how you show your love for us. Lord, I pray that hard hearts will be softened. Lord God, I pray for my hard heart in any area that I may be struggling. Lord, I pray that you will reveal that to me, that you will make that clear to me, that I may repent of it and draw closer to you, Lord God. Father, I pray for us as a church that we will not cement ourselves in self-righteousness, that we believe that we have it all together. But Lord God, we are solely products of your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church, that you would lead us and guide us by your Spirit into greater holiness, to greater righteousness, and Lord God, that through that, that we will be obedient, equipped, and prepared to take your gospel, this message of your grace to people in our own neighborhoods and around the world. Father, we love you and thank you for all that you do for us. But Jesus, thank you especially for the cross, for what you endured on our behalf. Lord God, your name be honored and glorified. Jesus, your name be lifted high as we sing together now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.